Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend Telly Davidson for a continuation of a series we have started at the ACF in commemoration of 9-11 with respect, of course, to cinema. In the first podcast, I talked about Oliver Stone's World Trade Center from 2006, the best post-9-11 movie about 9-11, one of the very few ones at that, a meditation on heroism and American character and America as a nation with public and private things with men and women, with ordinary citizens and soldiers and law enforcement and all of these things portrayed in a very thoughtful way. What's more, in a true story, it's quite a remarkable achievement. But of course, the effect of 9-11 on cinema is much broader than Oliver Stone's movies, much broader than World Trade Center. And so today I invited Telly Davidson to talk about how the mood in cinema was altered. 21st century cinema is much grimmer than Hollywood was before. A lot of this has to do with 9-11 and the wars in the Middle East, although of course there are many other catastrophes that people could complain about in society, in the economy, in culture, so on and so forth. But the mood in cinema has altered for the grim, and that bears talking about. And then we will talk about the fantasy problem. 21st century Hollywood is all about fantasy, and much of it is quite grim and seems to have an obvious connection to 9-11. We'll turn to famous directors after that, and then to the trivialization of 9-11 in cinema in absence of great directors. And from there, we will turn to the inherent difficulties of dealing with 9-11. On the one hand, What is the story? What kind of story is 9-11? What template, what genre, what kind of plot are we looking at here? And on the other hand, the increasing importance of television in American storytelling and what 9-11 or rather post-9-11 America with terrorism as a domestic and foreign affairs issue, what that looks like. So much for the agenda for today. Telly, thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks a lot for thinking through these things along with me and setting an agenda and the structure for the podcast and going back and forth on all these things that we will be talking about today and indeed more for future podcasts. First, tell me how you're doing. I'm doing very well. I'm uh, sending uh, you and all of the ACF family greetings from the uh, San Luis Obispo coastline, where I'm uh, working from remote, as is so often the case during our quarantine. And I'm visiting some relatives up here and having just celebrated my September 11th birthday, which is one of the reasons why I think Titus kindly chose me for this podcast, because this was a seminal day in my life in uh, many respects. So I've always had a great appreciation for film and documentary and such over 9-11. Yeah, somehow you are fated. You deal with cinema, that's the job, and you're born on 9-11, and we're talking about post-9-11 cinema. In a movie or a novel, nobody would believe that I would do something like this or that somebody like you exists. But in reality, here you are, and so here we are. First of all, let's introduce the situation. Let's compare pre- and post-9-11 cinema. Hollywood in the 90s versus the Hollywood we are all now aware of and perhaps sick of in some cases. How did we get so grim? 
Well, I think what happened was you had a lot of Generation X sort of came in at the very end of that generation, just as we were about to transition to the millennials. And a lot of directors, Quentin Tarantino, who was sort of more about Obama's age, sort of a boomer, but sort of Gen X and even millennial aligned, as they would say, and people like Kevin Smith and Paul Thomas Anderson and so forth, who grew up on 70s new wave films, 60s new wave cinema, and 70s new Hollywood cinema. And even in Tarantino's case, some of the like Canon, Kojak type detective shows and such they remembered from their youth and very consciously incorporated that aesthetic into their movies and sort of in the same way that a jazz or a rock musician will put in little riffs and little references to, you know, Miles Davis or Beatles songs or or Sinatra or whatever, they would put in their little riffs and references in 90s cinema to often, many cases, superior films of the past. And it got to the point where so much of 90s cinema and television was self-referential, was, as they would say, meta-media. Probably the Scream horror movies were the best example of that, and even something like Boogie Nights and things of that nature, where it was self-consciously, you were, as it were, you were in on the joke in filmmaking. And you certainly saw that in things like American Pie and in, you know, TV shows like that 70s show and so forth. And there is certainly a case that can be made that the late 90s, particularly 1999 and 2000, rank up there with 1976. And some would say, I wouldn't say it, and I don't think you would either, but some would say even 1939 and so forth as one of the signal years in American film. But when you look back on that era, other than maybe Men in Black, and if you really stand on your head and close your eyes and rub your tummy a little bit, maybe The Matrix, other than that, almost all of the prestige films of that era, whether it was period pieces like Titanic and Shakespeare in Love and Private Ryan, which was a war movie, but was 50 years earlier. And the whole point was that that era of total war was a thing of the past, where things like American Beauty and Magnolia and Aaron Brockovich and Traffic and Requiem for a Dream and things like that, it was all oriented towards the personal. It was very Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, self-help 70s retro. And it was all oriented towards people's personal lives and fulfillment and that type of thing. There wasn't any kind of epic foreign policy focus. And that really changed after 9-11. It didn't happen immediately, but filmmaking certainly became a lot less glib and a lot less kind of pseudo campy and a lot less winking at the audience. You know, in horror, you went from the scream and the scary movie type movies to things like Saw and Hostel. In action movies, you went from the sort of almost camp escapism of apocalypse as camp, as true lies, where you actually had a plane flown into a building at the end, and it was almost as a joke or uh, Independence Day to things where these were taken seriously as they should have been. 
And certainly by the time Obama got there, by the time the Bush administration was wrapping up and the Great Recession was about to hit, you had films like David Fincher's Zodiac and No Country for Old Men with Anton Chigger murdering everyone and getting away with it and The Social Network and Up in the Air, which was a romantic comedy or could have been, but was really about as dark as you could get for a romantic comedy. You had a real cynicism. Pauline Kael made fun of some of the pretenses of the European New Wave by calling it, let's dress up as the sad sack of Europe parties. And you started having a let's dress up as the sad sack of America parties by about 2009, 2010. And some of those were very good films artistically, but you certainly saw a great change in the sort of ethos and in the aesthetic of film. And even in in television, I'm not going to belabor the point, but it really started with NYPD Blue and with Tony Soprano. But from about 2002 to about 2015, you had Dr. House, you had The Mentalist, you had Walter White, you had Don Draper, you had The Shield, you had all of these toxic anti-heroes as the heroes of their own primetime dramas. And again, that just really epitomized the whole darkening somberness that hit. The antecedent to that would be what happened with World War II. During the Depression and the early war years, people were looking for escapism. They were looking for Fred and Ginger dancing their way through the Depression on beautiful black glass display floors. They were looking for the sort of Norman Rockwell-esque portraits that uh, Louis Mayer and MGM were turning out. After the soldiers came home during the late 40s and and during the Korean War era in the 50s and the start of the Cold War, you had film noir and you had the Italian neorealism come into vogue. And it was not as artistically great a leap as that in the transition post 9-11, but it was a similar psychological adjustment in the mood of the country and in the mood of what Hollywood was looking for. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. The war did have an effect on people, not quite in the way World War II or Vietnam, the big 20th century wars for America, but it was noticeable as things went on. And it's not so easy to distinguish pre and post 9-11 when you look at, say, directors, but it is much easier when you just start with how did the mood get so dark? And uh, we should move on to this second subject. The tenor, as you were saying, of pre-9-11 cinema or 90s cinema was that nothing ever changes. You can have shocking things, you can have campy things. The aliens might come here, or it might be not Independence Day, but Mars Attacks, the Tim Burton alien invasion, satire on American elites. But nothing ever changes. There was, in some way, a confidence in America there that throughout the 21st century has been falling apart, or at least it's been chipped at very considerably, depending on whom you ask. So I agree. The and mood I, of cinema is a very important thing by itself. You cannot always put together who did what and why, but things add up. You notice that confidence in America is scarcer and scarcer. It's not quite easy to say is America decaying? 
is decadence hitting Hollywood to the point where a kind of misery just becomes presumed in many popular pictures, in most prestige pictures, far as the eye can see? Or is it a regaining of seriousness instead? Is it more like tragedy, realizing that you're not going to have all these happy ends? You're not going to have so much success as you could want. Things do change and often for the worse. By itself, this is an ambiguous matter. But as you suggested, there is novelty in 21st century Hollywood, but there is little we could say by way of greatness. You can't quite compare this to the 30s and 40s, the glory of old Hollywood. You can't compare it to the 70s when you had all these young directors who are now all very old directors succeed for the first time. We have a new situation, a new political situation. There are changes in technology, just like there's a change of generations, but we do not have great new talent. We do not have great achievements comparable to the 30s or the 70s. We have instead this thing we will keep returning to throughout the darkening mood, the notion that cinema can't escape from America, from realities, And American society just is not working out. It's become harder and harder for artists and perhaps for the audience to sell a happy end, to give you a feel-good story. I agree completely. And also, I think it's confidence and also a sense of safety. I think that a lot of people, even during the Vietnam era, even during World War II, after Pearl Harbor, The American, as it were, homeland had not really been struck. You had race riots and all that and war protests during Vietnam and Watergate, but they were homegrown. And even in the 90s, you had a bombing attempt on the World Trade Center, which did kill quite a few people, but it didn't kill 3,000 people. It was largely... I can't say that anything that kills anyone or maims people is ineffective, but it was nothing compared to the real thing, as it were. And you had domestic terrorism like Timothy McVeigh and and the first school shootings like Columbine and Paducah and such. But those were all really considered crime and law enforcement problems by lone gunmen, by psychopaths, weirdos, that sort of thing. As far as the idea of a terrorist group or a country being able to carry out a Pearl Harbor or an atomic bomb-like attack, on the country. I don't think it really entered most people's heads outside of maybe the intelligence community. And even in the, in the government, I mean, uh, Osama bin Laden went on 2020 in 1998 and issued a fatwa and an intifada against the United States and bombed the embassies in uh, Nairobi and so forth th- that year. And yet Clinton and George W., one can hardly say that they took him seriously when you look back at the unbelievably lax response that both of them gave this. There was a sense of, you know, we've won World War II, we've won the Cold War, we're the lone superpower, nobody can touch us. And that really went away in a big way on 9-11 and never came back. And I think that that's, so there's a loss of confidence and there's also that loss of security in your own home that 9-11, I think, really symbolizes to this day. 
Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Telly, that all of a sudden American vulnerability went from a fantasy you might include as a plot point on the way to a solution, and it turned into a mood. It turned into just what things are like. As you're suggesting, terrorism turned from a legal issue for something for the police and then the courts to deal with into something that might be a political issue. It might require a war. It might involve international affairs. And indeed, it might involve the American way of life. After 9-11, of course, gradually the notion came up, what are we going to do? And implicitly, what's going to happen to us? How is our way of life going to change? One could look at the post-9-11 cinema as reflecting on these two matters. Is it possible for Americans to return being American? Not perhaps as flippant or unserious or arrogant as in the 90s, but recognizably American. Or are Americans fated perhaps to face something that they've never had to face before? Terrible vulnerability, evidence, not merely symbolized, evidenced by slaughters in the homeland, something that everybody else in the world has faced, but not Americans. Not since, of course, the days of the Civil War. Cinema reacted to this not with political movies, not with stories about society, not even with contemporary fiction, if we can call movies that. Primarily, it was fantasy that took over the dealing with the national memory, or rather the national trauma of 9-11. One sees in the Christopher Nolan Batman movies the fear of terrorism, the building up of the national security state, the necessity for incredibly violent heroes who are more terrifying than the villains they face. Rule by fear is simply taken for granted in the Batman trilogy. The only question is, who is terrorizing whom? This was unimaginable in the Hollywood of the 90s, even aside from the fact that 90s Batman was a joke, just like 60s Batman was all fun and games. Well, Nolan's Batman, which has become iconic, which people have fallen in love with, and which has resurrected this strange caped crusader, it's not fun in games, and it's not fun. It's closer to horror, in fact, than to any other genre. Now, Christopher Nolan is a master. His movies are epics, but the mood is incredibly grim because it reflects the notion that small as one terrorist attack is, its moral effect and its political implications are very great indeed. We might go so far as to say, as our academic friends might say, that they are existential. And that darkness is, of course, what DC movies became famous for. Zack Snyder in the Batman versus Superman movie with Christopher Nolan again, simply reenacted 9-11 as part of a fantasy. We see Batman, his world falling apart around him, New York skyscrapers being brought down. It's all in the context of a fantastic fight between Superman and other Kryptonians. But for everybody watching it, they know immediately that this is what 9-11 was like. Here is Batman who feels what we felt. Here is somebody who might turn into incredibly ferocious warrior because he never wants to experience that vulnerability again because he wants to protect the people so that they can never be slaughtered that way again. That's a fantasy movie, but it's as close to reality as anything in Hollywood got to what it might mean for people to be so scared and so angry, to feel at the same time so weak and so powerful that they could react to terrorism with war. And that's all on the one side of fantasy, the 21st century genre, the superhero fantasy. 
On the other side, we have the Marvel movies, which are the most successful thing in Hollywood, and in fact, might be Hollywood for all intents and purposes. Of course, Disney is coming up on being half of Hollywood just by itself. It has swallowed up the studio in 20th Century Fox, and it's probably going to do it again or lose whatever else it takes to keep acquiring what they call intellectual property. But the Marvel division specifically has specialized in reenacting 9-11 in superhero movie after superhero movie in vaguely New York-like city after vaguely New York-like city with one alien invasion after another, with one incredibly catastrophic disaster after another, all lightly treated and ultimately disarmed, but still for all the sarcasm that is the Marvel trademark, for all the cleverness that people obviously enjoy since this is such a multi-billion dollar business that just doesn't seem to be over even today. It's tied up to 9-11 and to the national memory, or as I said, the national trauma. The Marvel success is only started in 2008 with Iron Man, in which Iron Man is a contractor for the global war on terror. He gets captured in Afghanistan after a demo where he brags essentially about how destructive his bombing technique is and his technology. Then, of course, it turns out that all the villains are in America, that it's industry, all of the things that liberals reassured us was the case, that the government and big business people, they're the real evil, not terrorists. And of course, if you look at it in 2021, it's the conservatives who believe that government and big business are evil, worse than terrorists, and the liberals <laughs> who think it's the other way around. So permanently half of America is of this opinion. But for all this strange reassurance, it wasn't the terrorists. It was us after all. Iron Man and the Marvel Universe started with this notion of terror, of terror that is tied up with the global war on terror, with Afghanistan and Iraq, with 9-11 as the source of it all, and with the inadequacy of the political military response symbolized by Iron Man. Then it just became doing that again and again and again and again, because of course the audience cannot forget there is no public authoritative art or political speech or anything else to say nothing of you know, religion for people who believe in God. There's nothing like that concerning 9-11. It just fell into the lap of Marvel and the superhero movie genre. And there you see not merely the mood of the nation, but various articulations of what heroism might require, how we might deal with this matter. Very, very true. And the one thing I was thinking of was a quote I read, I think it was way back in high school or college, that uh, slavery and the Holocaust were like two monsters that sat down in the living room of America's house and refused to go away. And while nothing can be compared to slavery or the Holocaust for obvious reasons, as horrible as 9-11 was, 9-11 is sort of like the kid brother to those two monsters. It's a monster that sits down in the middle of our recent history and just sits there and doesn't go away. People don't know what to do about it. They try to talk around it. They try to ignore it. They try to turn their back on it but it's always there. And I think a lot of the nostalgia that people feel is the nostalgia that someone feels. Probably the worst example would be a woman who is raped. She feels a nostalgia for the days before the rape, 
for the innocence and the sort of freedom that they represented. And I think that's one of the reasons why 9-11 still haunts people. They want to have that sense of invulnerability and safety and confidence back that they lost on that day. And that unfortunately, we sort of lost again, dying a second death, whether you're for Trump or Biden or whatever, with the horrific, real-life sad endings to Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, I think that's right. There's no happy end on Afghanistan. It's strange and shocking to see America defeated, retreating, leaving some more dead people behind. Another 13 U.S. soldiers died as America was running out of Afghanistan. All of them seem to have been younger than I am. Indeed, they were 20 or under, it seems. Kids who born at or after 9-11 itself. It's a shocking thing to contemplate. What nation fights 20-year wars? If it's a war or whatever it is that was happening there, we don't even know because it's on the one hand shocking, as I said. On the other hand, it's just boring and ordinary and nobody cares anymore. You have to tell people that there's something happening. Suddenly the press started talking about Afghanistan again about a month ago. It was gone for the longest time. We got our horror of war from movies instead. The people in the press both stopped caring, but they couldn't leave it alone on the other hand. As you're saying, uh, 9-11 and the aftermath, this new vulnerability and this loss of innocence, all of the stuff that comes with violence against the homeland, which, as I said, America simply does not know a very good thing, but also a weakness. This showed up in fantasy. And why is that? Well, America has famous directors. They give Oscars every year. There are blockbusters every year. There are magazines and there are critics and there are all sorts of things that are supposed to suggest to people who's successful. Is he popular? Is he prestigious? Is he really connecting with people, with which people, with the elite, with ordinary people? What is happening? Well, however you think about all of these things that generally fall under the rubrics of prestige and popularity, 9-11 was mostly untouchable for great directors. I suggested that the last master active in Hollywood, Christopher Nolan, he cared very seriously about 9-11, but thought that the political problem can only be portrayed in a fantasy, presumably to avoid the problem of true stories. You have to stick too close to the facts. You cannot have any kind of artistic vision on those terms. But of course, he was also at the beginning of his Hollywood career, so he didn't have any liberty. Compare that to Steven Spielberg, whose 9-11 movie is split in between a fantasy, War of the Worlds, and on the other hand, a fictionalized historical story, Munich, about Israeli agents hunting down Nazis after the Second World War. And in War of the Worlds, Spielberg suggests that America achieved a kind of unity and vulnerability. Working class people, same as anybody else, were all in it together for once. And for all the horror, there was a kind of moral coherence to America in self-defense. But it was in fear of this enemy that suddenly arose from among us and inflicted terrifying, unpredictable damage. On the other hand, in Munich, he seems to suggest that the reaction to that kind of danger is incredibly compromising from a moral point of view, that fighting against terrorists makes you into a murderer. 
And if that's what prestige liberalism has to offer by way of political analysis, it's perhaps somewhat salutary. War of the World is certainly very good at capturing the national mood and Munich had capturing liberal doubts about the war on terror, but it's not much to work with and it is quite disguised. And of course, if Spielberg can't speak up, who can speak up, so to speak, for directors? It's very hard to find other directors of renown who could even be mentioned in the same breath as Master, who even tried. Talking to you, I thought that perhaps Quentin Tarantino, after Kill Bill, his movies turned into historical rewrites. Why would you attempt to rewrite history about slavery, about the Holocaust, which you have already mentioned, of course, and other issues, most recently, the Manson murders? Why do you want to rewrite history to avoid the kind of tragedy we all know happened historically? Tarantino shows his incipient conservatism or his secret conservatism in revealing this strange thing that Americans always want to rewrite history. Americans want to go back and prevent Hitler from committing the Holocaust. They want to go back and prevent slavery from being so bad or leading to a civil war. They always want to erase evil from history. This is what his movies ironically are about. They've always been about this, but they've become historical and touching on America's great weaknesses and great doubts, as you were saying before. And so I think we can see with Tarantino, as with Nolan, how younger directors were touched by 9-11, forced to reflect on America and on cinema and on what it is they might do. But it is all incredibly fictionalized, or in the case of Tarantino, ironic. If you can believe that somebody went back to the past and prevented slavery or Hitler, you're a child. You just don't understand evil at all. You're just wishing it would all go away like a boogeyman. And that, to some extent, speaks to liberals who deny evil is a real problem. It's, to some extent, it speaks to conservatives who pretend they're going to bomb evil out of Afghanistan or however one might justify what happened in that country. It's not exactly war certainly not a serious foreign policy, and it ended up, as I said, in defeat and retreat. That's, of course, much harsher than anything you could learn from Tarantino, but it is of the same character. We want to whitewash evil. We want to pretend we're going to fix this. And there are such reactions from the greatest directors there are in Hollywood, but no thematic treatment in Hollywood of 9-11, except, of course, Oliver Stone's World Trade Center, which is a very good and worthy movie, but it's also very modest and almost entirely ignores, of course, the consequences of 9-11 or war. And that's, uh, I think, one of the great issues with dramatizing 9-11 is very few of the people uh, maybe a few in the Pentagon, but it was hardly the primary thing on their minds as they were fighting for their lives. Very few of the 3,000 people who were murdered that day by the terrorists had any idea that their deaths and that this tragedy would be, dare I say the word, hijacked into an 18 or 20 year long war on terror. They were too busy simply fighting for their lives and fighting to save their buddies and their friends, or if they were policemen and firemen fighting to save as many people as they could, just straight up. So when we dramatize the events of that day and the first, let's say, week or so afterwards, we have a very different dynamic 
than what came afterwards, which is arguably in some ways more dramatic because 9-11 was a shocking, horrifying thing that happened on one day. And the war on terror is something that happened all over the world for years and years. The question then becomes, how does one dramatize the events of people who were sort of sucked into this vortex unaware, who woke up that day thinking it was going to be just another ordinary day and bring a sort of a dramatic structure to it. Yeah, you're right. If you look at things as World Trade Center does, the Oliver Stone movie, you're restricting everything to the perspective of the people who were involved there who had no idea what was going on. That's true to their experience, and it's an experience to be treasured because they were ordinary Americans living as America lives. That's the American life right there. But it's also incredibly limited. It has no, not only no political perspective, but it is based on the opinion there's no such thing as war. There's no real danger ever to worry about. But of course, danger is part of life just as surely as ordinary middle-class peaceful America. And on the other hand, if you focus on this matter, what are Americans like at war, you inevitably lose sight of why the war was even fought. There doesn't seem to be any possibility to put together America at peace and America at war. Perhaps that's why things looked to us as they did in the beginning. 90s cinema assumed that America would be at peace forever. There's no trouble that yes. can ever come to America. America might become morally corrupt or it might be rendered miserable in some way, but not because of falling invasion, not because of war, not because of the kind of trouble we associate now with terrorism. Afterwards, whether the American way of life would continue became somewhat doubtful, not just the requirements of security, but why we want so much security itself became quite a problem. America reacted with some kind of theatrical things like the TSA, but they became a permanent hassle and it seemed like everybody would just have to accept it's never going to be America again. And of course, other things like Homeland Security were not merely a hassle. They turned into bigger and bigger political problems. And so it seemed like Americans themselves, but especially elite Americans, abandoned whatever America had been before. America would have to become something quite different, more bellicose. It would require more use of authority to control people's lives, and it would bring into question what private life is and whether there is anything such as privacy. The one strange holdout in this transformation was indie movies. Most of the post-9-11 movies that have to do with 9-11, the event itself or life afterwards in New York City and so on and so forth, they're indie movies. Some of them are famous enough because the director is famous, like Spike Lee's The 25th Hour, and there are a few like that. There are many others that are much smaller and unknown, and they seem to be the vanity projects of very frivolous people. There you see a kind of holdout of 90s liberal individualism. Some silly fellow or another in a very self-indulgent way is trying to find his identity, and somehow 9-11 figures into this. It can put a cap to a story, it can remind people of their mortality, it can force people to face the limits of blah, blah, blah. But it tends to be very trivial stuff, and in a certain way, it's a form of desecration. It takes away what 9-11 meant both to the people who are stuck living it in Manhattan and to the nation as a whole, stuck to their TVs watching it, knowing that life would never be the same. There's a kind of tendency to reduce the dramatization of 9-11 to something like 
lessons learned along the way, which is, of course, a very liberal way of looking at movie making. And I'm happy not to name these movies because I'm just happy they have been forgotten. But I think (laughs) there's evidence there in, in the fact that people keep doing this stuff that giving up the narcissism of the 90s comes very, very difficultly to people who think it's their only way to celebrity or to some kind of relevance. It may seem shocking to just put 9-11 somewhere in your movie that has nothing to do with this, but it's also an opportunity for the people who like to do uh, mildly shocking things. And so somehow great talent in cinema was replaced by incredibly contemptible, untalented people, one movie after another. It's good enough for me that they have been forgotten, but... On the other hand, it does seem like it's a complete failure of festivals to foster art and of Hollywood more broadly to produce any serious reflection on what's going on in America and what it is that people feel what has happened to this country, aside from speeches of politicians and in a way even aside from big political decisions like starting a war or indeed another or indeed the third. Right. And that was even, uh, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but that was, I think, in some ways, an even bigger problem with quote unquote commercial literary fiction written by authors just slightly older than we are, sort of that we're coming to fore in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and just before the Great Recession. You had a whole bunch of books, things like Indecision and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close and a lot of sort of quote-unquote chick-lit novels and so forth that were written where the most, I mean, I don't want to sound like, especially on ACF, like Mr. Wokey, but the most almost cartoonishly rich, white, privileged, insular, self-centered people lived through 9-11 and were not personally affected. I mean, they didn't necessarily, they didn't know any like police officers or firefighters or anyone who was, you know, lower middle class. And they certainly didn't know any minorities or people of color, but they were so shocked. And so, oh, wow, man, things are really getting real with this, that it became a plot point to them on their self-actualization coming of age. And if there's one thing I can say I'm grateful for woke culture for is that that is seen as being as offensively, I thought it was offensively privileged at the time. And it, it really looks almost disgusting now. And the other thing I was thinking of is you made such a good and such a tragic point that whether you were for or against the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, everyone who was in our age group, you and me, who was born in the late 70s, early 80s, knew why we were over there. A lot of the young kids that died in the last year or two over in the Middle East, I won't say they had no idea why we weren't over there. I mean, if they were literate, they knew why, but they were in park preschool. They were in daycare when 9-11 happened. They were toddlers, and they never remembered an America that wasn't at war in the Middle East. That was the norm to them. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I feel almost parental or paternal to them that they really never knew, as they would say on Stranger Things, the before times. They really never knew of a world where we weren't under this this dark cloud of war. Another thing, as far as you were saying about the dramatizing the 
day of 9-11, neither one of them were as great a film, either in impact or in artistry as World Trade Center was. But I know we were talking in the prep to this about Paul Greengrass's film, United 93. And there's an interesting, I reviewed United 93 back then when I was a young puppy film critic for a Film Stew and Yahoo Movies. And there was a competing miniseries, or a competing movie made for television at the time called Flight 93 that was made by the legendary policewoman producer David Gerber with the backing of a studio and of A&E networks and so forth. And Greengrass made his film on what was pretty much of a shoestring budget for a major feature film. And with, I think, the biggest name was David Rashi, you know, of Sledgehammer fame. There were really no, you know, name Jennifer Aniston, Angelina Jolie, Tom Cruise names in Greengrass's picture. And the interesting little backstory is Mr. Gerber already signed all of the people who were known to the public, Todd Beamer, Jeremy Glick, people like that whose wives and whose parents had been on television and given newspaper interviews and so forth that were known to the public and for their right of license to their names and their likenesses and their life stories. So Greengrass had a big problem making this movie in that he was not allowed to mention the names. He couldn't say, yo, Todd, let's do this, or hey, Jeremy, let's roll. He had to make all of his characters sort of nameless, faceless stick figures that just sort of implied who they were in real life. And he also cut away a lot to the FAA and to the FBI, CIA headquarters and that type of thing, which made it more dramatic, but which is also a very artful way of vamping for time and getting us off the claustrophobic airplane. And both movies came out at the same time. Flight 93 was a good film for what it was, but it was also, I remember us talking about it, it was very much sort of terms of endearment, touched by an angel, little house on the prairie type filmmaking. It was a tearjerker. It was, you know, emotional scenes of people saying goodbye to each other and crying on their cell phones. It was extreme close-ups of, oh my, what are we going to do? And United 93, one of my best friends, who's a, a Brent Simon, one of the most talented film critics out there, he loved United 93. And he said one of the reasons it worked was because of this inadvertent situation Greengrass was put in that he ended up having to tell the story instead of with specific real life characters as a sort of a view from every man and every woman that was on the plane. It allowed you as the viewer to sort of put yourself and think there but for the grace of God, that could have been me on that plane. What could I do? What, what would I have done in that situation? Would I have chickened out? Would I have fought? What would I have done in that situation? So United 93 is really a, a very interesting curio to look back on 14 or 15 years later as a great example of a film that in some ways worked better because of the limitations that were placed on it and what Greengrass was able to do with them. I think you're right, or rather that Brent is right about this stuff. The fact that all these people are strangers makes perfect sense. They're just on a plane. They don't know who anybody else is. They're all Americans. They can understand each other as Americans and act together, but they don't know each other's names. 
And of course, we don't know those names except Todd Beaver. And, uh, and, yeah. and they had no idea that they were in for anything other than the most routine, banal, ordinary flight from point A to point B that day. Exactly. So that part makes sense. The problem with the movie gets us nicely to our sixth subject of the day. As you're saying, there is a great trouble dramatizing 9-11 in terms of genre. Paul Greengrass is such a loser because he treats it as a kind of action movie, as you were saying, with some thriller notes, cutaways from the plane to authoritative figures who are impotent somewhere else. But his story is great, but his movie making is routine action thriller. You expect, I don't know, Steven Seagal from the 90s to pop out in these things or whoever is doing these movies nowadays. He doesn't think to characterize this anonymous people. He just doesn't know how to do it. Maybe you're right that it's also he didn't have much of a cast, so the actors weren't good enough either. But it's altogether a failure because it is an action movie, but about a true story. And it ends up having the strengths of neither. It's not dramatically compelling, since we can never forget that these are real things that happen. And of course, action thrillers tend to success, and this one can't. Nor, on the other hand, can it carry the power of conviction of a true story because he keeps doing action movie things with the camera and the editing and so on and so forth. Oliver Stone solved this problem for World Trade Center in a very intelligent way. He knew that people would think it's a disaster movie. It's two towers falling on these people. That's a disaster movie. But he doesn't show you the disaster. He just shows you the people. I'm not sure this is great movie making, but at least he solves the genre problem very well for the story he's telling. And you're just left with the true story. You're not left with the stupid theatrical things that belong in a genre picture, but don't really belong in a true story. Reality cannot be dramatized in this cheap way. And other movies would also have to deal with this. What genre is this story? How is the audience supposed to grab this? But of course, it's not just a problem for the audience. It's a problem for the actors. How are they supposed to be acting this scene? It's a problem for everybody in the crew. Where is the camera? Where is it moving? How are you going to cut this in post? All of these things have to be clear to a director before he sets about telling a story. But the power of 9-11 over all of us, including Hollywood, in our imaginations, in our moral convictions, and on the other hand, the absence of very talented directors in this kind of work has led to a situation where nobody can quite tell how can art help tell the true story? How can it not get in the way, not make a travesty by pretense, but tell the true story in the best way you can? This has really not happened. And I think this brings us nicely around to our seventh and last subject. Most of post 9-11 storytelling is not the movies, of course, it's television. Cinema is broadly being replaced by television, and all of it is collapsing into what we call content in the age of streaming. But as soon as 9-11, of course, this sort of terrorism turning into a global war on terror terrorism story became very big with 24, with Jack Bauer. And that went on for about a decade. And in the second decade of the 21st century in the global war on terror, it was Homeland, which also went on for about a decade, which was even more obsessed with espionage, Islam, the Middle East, the CIA, all of these post-9-11 things that Americans happily were able to avoid and ignore before. And I am mostly critical of this sort of stuff. And when I think back on the plot of 24 or Homeland, it almost makes me sick 
But before I get to harsh criticism, how do you think about post 9-11 television when it comes to war, terrorism, espionage, action heroes, and all this stuff? In the general sense, there was the darkening. There were the anti-heroes. I don't want to get off topic, but uh, there were also things. I mean, the biggest political show of, of the late 90s, early 2000s was the West Wing, which was totally idealistic. And then all of the other shows, House of Cards, Scandal, Beep, and so forth, were totally cynical. Then you also had one show that uh, certainly not a critic's darling, but that we were talking about. It's been on the air for 18 years, and it was a spinoff of a show that went back to the 90s, a JAG, would be NCIS. I think they've got like four of them now, and which was taking the sort of procedural law and order CSI format that one used to investigate, dare I say, routine crimes, rape, murder, robbery, and putting it into the context of the global war on terror and international kind of intrigues. But I certainly think hands down that whether you loved them or hated them, 24 and Homeland were certainly the signature quote unquote serious shows to really deal with both the post 9-11 society and what 9-11 did to the psyche of conservative America, the sort of kick butt take names, sort of Generation X answer to Bronson and Eastwood hero that Jack Bauer represented, and also to the, you know, highly educated professional CIA kind of pseudo Valerie Plame like woman that Claire Danes played on Homeland. The one other thing, if I can double back just really quick that I'll say about World Trade Center was when one looks back, one is really surprised at how tasteful a movie it was coming from Oliver Stone, particularly in that up to that point, his signature films other than Wall Street were Platoon, which was an overtly anti-war film and born on the 4th of July, and also his JFK. And a lot of people were surprised at World Trade Center and at his George W. Bush movie right after that, that he didn't go into conspiracy theory, that he didn't use it as a clothesline to put his own kind of, you know, far left deconstructionist politics on. And I think that his keeping the focus on the men trapped in the building rather than pornographying 9-11 with the towers coming down and the mushroom cloud and the debris chasing people and people running around with their heads cut off screaming and the people swan diving off the buildings that I think he thought that people have seen that so much on the news and on the internet even by 2005, 2006, let alone by now, that showing that would trivialize it. And I think in many ways he made the right decision, that he kept the focus on these first responders who were heroic in that they didn't just survive something unspeakable, but that they were there because they were trying to rescue, uh, affirmatively rescue other people. There was a 9-11 documentary done for uh, National Geographic with a very tough, older, I guess late 50s, 60s or so, Italian-American attorney who was teaching a human resources class on 9-11, and he was caught in the building and he managed to escape. And he said, one of the last images I had when I 
got my way out was of this young firefighter, you know, drenched with sweat, strapped down with equipment. And he said, I didn't know where the F I was going. And I was just trying to get away from there and get back to my family. And he was going into the building and he knew exactly where he was going. And this tough Italian New York old school lawyer actually started crying. It choked him up to see that's heroism. He said, that's magnificent. And I think that's what Stone definitely tried to come across. As far as television, yes, I think, again, you saw it in the cynicism and in the 90s TV was plenty cynical, certainly, but it certainly went next level in the 2000s and the 2010s, both on prestige cable and on network. I remember my mother used to say that one of the things that she disliked the most about commercial television that started in the 90s, particularly with the X-Files and with ER and, and CSI at the very end of the 90s, was that these things brought almost slasher movie level blood and gore onto the small screen. They were not, you know, Matlock and Murder, She Wrote, where you get shot in the heart and there's a little thumbtack sized, you know, blood stain on your coat. And she said it was the triumph of the slasher aesthetic. And then certainly you saw the slasher, the horror aesthetic all over the place in TV. I mean, things like Criminal Minds and Nip Tuck and even more recently, things like Clarice and Stranger Things and all that with people getting their eyes gouged out and faces torn off and surgeries performed on them with the anesthesia not working and, you know, really gratuitously gross horror coming onto cable and even network TV. And that was certainly a byproduct of 9-11 raising the stakes, if you will, for death and destruction, which also goes back to the comic book movies as well, that you see all of these movies about blowing up the world and blowing up a city and the atomic bomb and that type of thing in the comic films. And TV brought a lot of that into the equivalent. But I'm waiting with bated breath to hear more of your thoughts on 24 and Homeland. I know we discussed those a little before the show, and I'd love to toss the uh, tennis ball back to you on that one, because you had some amazing insights on those two programs. Yeah, I think uh, you're right, and I think your mom's right. TV turned uglier and uglier because there was no reason not to. Even the justifications for violence became gradually less plausible. It was just obvious that even if there's not a demand for it, there's no real alternative to it. This is what storytelling can offer now. And it may be decadence, but what are you going to do? This is what it's like now. And as tasteful and thoughtful as Oliver Stone is, that's how horrible TV has become, especially on the 9-11 question. One part of it is you don't need to decide between being a noble hero and just being a survivor because they might be the same thing. With Jack Bauer, they're the same thing. Every time it's just one day and hour after hour, one horror after another is necessary just to survive. But at the same time, it's a saving horror because, uh, you know, save America from some kind of terrorist, whatever. This madness was popular partly because, as you suggested, Jack Bauer is what we've got after Clint Eastwood. It's, it was whatever was left of Mandy and so on television. 
in a way, this hysteria storytelling was the last excuse to have a manly man go around. Of course, 24 was made before 9-11, although it aired right after. And so the first season had just nothing to do with the global war on terror or 9-11 or any of these things that were concerned with. The first season was some kind of silly, melodramatic, soap opera-ish story about terrorism from the Balkans because of Clinton's Kosovo war, that sort of thing. And that set a template for all the trash that 24 piled on afterwards. But afterwards, it was at least half the time tied up to 9-11. The oddity of 24 is that it was a very liberal story. So it's 9-11 season after 9-11. Season 2 has all these sorts of worries about there are riots in American cities against Muslim Americans. Yeah, really? That's not actually happened in these 20 years, but it is something that the liberal media was very concerned with, the backlash against uh, Muslims in America, and all sorts of things that follow from this sort of liberal ideas. So the, the evil people of the second season are evil rich oil millionaires or billionaires corrupting politics, faking an attack on America to get a fake war in the Middle East so that they can drive oil prices up. This is the level of political thinking on 24, just like its level of political idealism is there is a black president and later there is a female president. If that's your idea of morality, you might pass muster as a liberal, but not as a serious human being. But this is what that show is like. And so you have this strange combination of manly man married with wife and daughter, Jack Bauer guy, and on the other hand, all of these hilariously ridiculous liberal ideas about what politics, what war, what foreign affairs, what the economy, what incredibly high-tech destruction looks like. There are nuclear war scares, there are biological war scares, there are dirty bombs, there are all these sorts of things featured in the various seasons of post-9-11 America show 24, but none of it has any kind of seriousness. If, on the other hand, you're interested in things like there's the president's brother having an affair with somebody, and then there's a murder because of that, and the president's ex-wife has, is a murderer, and so on and so forth, then yeah, that's 24 is exactly for you. If you think that this is crazy, then you just have to notice how craziness became a required form of storytelling, how fictionalized hysteria gradually debasing whatever it is that people thought about American institutions and officials simply became the way of looking at things, just like the restraints on violence or sexuality or anything else that had previously been considered immoral fell away from TV, the restraints on how to think about politics, presidents, senators, CIA, military, so on and so forth, those things fell away as well. And instead, you got things like 24, which that would make sense a kind of computer game as a first-person shooter. It makes almost no sense as storytelling. And that's precisely because it reduces presidents and other officials to these kinds of ridiculous soap opera story arcs, which are also dealt with and dispensed with very, very quickly because of the requirements of the action. And the popularity of the show was, I think, a pretty good sign that both hysteria and unseriousness are proceeding apace that ugly violence and the every season there's some torture going on stuff, all of that is advancing and also people care less and less about it. I think people call it being desensitized, but I would just say, well, this is decadence. And liberal as that was, it doesn't, of course, hold a candle to homeland where you have 
bipolar, kind of genius, single woman, single mom, in touch with her sexuality, let's say, female CIA agent solving crimes. Now, uh, Homeland, unlike 24, is largely about Arabs, Muslims, Islamic countries, or uh, Muslims in America as the enemy. And it is shockingly dedicated to the proposition that the CIA is competent in the (laughs) moment when the CIA proved itself to be incompetent time after time. I mean, we're talking about not just these kinds of CIA directors that turn into MSNBC pundits and nobody can spot the difference. That's telling, I would say. But we're talking about uh, the people who have no idea what the hell is going to happen on 9-11. We're talking about the the CIA, right? They, They got their station blown up in Afghanistan in 2011 by a walk-in source. How the hell does anybody think these people are competent? It seems like it's mostly the job of television and to some extent cinema to keep people thinking that the CIA knows how to do anything in espionage. And so somehow America got used to the fact that the CIA couldn't kill Osama bin Laden for 10 years. And that's all right. The alternative, thinking that you know the CIA could have killed him all along, but they didn't want to, that seems not so much like evil conspiratorial thinking, but it seems more like a kind of decency where you want to save the reputation of the CIA. Sure, they didn't kill him for a decade, but, you know, they could have all along. They're not incompetent morons. They're just wicked. The weakness of the CIA is on display in Homeland again and again. But uh, that show also turns, uh, you know, starts as a kind of Manchurian candidate story and quickly turns into soap opera about the revolving cast of characters who have affairs and ambitions and all sorts of trauma. And yeah, they have about the same connection to politics that ordinary people have. That I suppose is part of the charm. And of course, again, you have a female president somewhere in the later seasons to save the honor of America. But aside from some of these silly liberal uh, touches of idealism, mostly you get the sense that Americans are hopeless, that nothing happens in America that makes at all sense, and nobody is sane anymore. And that's just life. You just have to keep working for your institution and go on with, in the case of Homeland, the liberal vision of the careerist woman. So in the latter half of the show, the protagonist, super spy, becomes a single mother working in the international NGO humanitarian (laughs) uh, sphere and is tied up with whistleblower journalists. Uh, That's another liberal fantasy, but I don't think one that anybody really cares for, except, of course, perhaps the single women of the upper middle classes or something like that. And so TV not only turned 9-11 to trash, and betrayed any aspiration on the part of Americans to understand what war and espionage are like, what Americans have to do and whether they can stay American if they do those things, what is being screwed up in politics and what might it take to fix those things. All of those aspirations betrayed, as I said. But instead, you get uh, the kind of soap operas you'd have had in previous decades, just you know, uglier more shameless, as though that meant realism. It's a fantasy. Again, presidents appear and disappear, or vice presidents appear and disappear. Those are cliffhangers. Well, that's not politics, and it's nothing shy of madness either, even as storytelling. Now, granted, 24 had almost nothing to do with real events. It was just one made-up thing after another, one made-up country after another, that. Whereas in Homeland, they do use as much as possible real events. But it turns out to make absolutely no difference to the extent to which 
at least a part of America's elites are involved in storytelling, trying to tell America what America is like. They're all stuck in fantasies that cannot solve genre problems, cannot solve politics problems, cannot solve the problem that we all have seen the wars on TV and we have our own opinions. They're stuck in a fantasy land from which, of course, only rude things like complete defeat in Afghanistan could ever wake them up. In some ways, the soap opera aspect worked better on Homeland than on 24, because 24 was ultimately about a man who was a doer. Jack Bauer wasn't stupid, but he wasn't an intellectual who studied philosophy and psychology and had a great interest in ideas and so forth. And even if he did, that was not really germane to his work. He was the guy you counted on to get stuff done that other more pedestrian souls either couldn't do or wouldn't do. And in some ways, Claire Dane's character, assuming they were in the same sort of fictional universe, she would have been his supervisor if they ever did a crossover of the two shows. She was a thinker. She was someone who worked in the abstract. But if she wanted to drone someone or to put out a hit on someone, she wouldn't go out there dressed in a keffiyeh and a costume and do it herself. She would have a Jack Bauer carry out what her and her committee wanted to do. And so it allowed for the focus to be on the drama, and a very self-indulgent drama, one might say, of someone who is faced with making these decisions, whereas Bauer was the guy who was out there, and for as much as many people as he tortured and murdered and killed, and, or I should say executed rather than murdered, and so forth, he was, you know, shot, stabbed, burned, tortured, beaten, you know, he was the default image of him is, you know, sweaty and dirty and bleeding and that type of thing. Whereas the default image of Dane's character is, you know, wearing a chic Donna Karen knockoff business suit, wandering around Washington or flying to various, you know, headquarters and so forth. But they both sort of make an interesting inadvertent segue on how we went from the 9-11 era to today, because in the 24, the threat was mostly external. Yes, you had corrupt presidents at the top who were doing terrible things, and which I guess you could say paralleled years later the whole, you know, Trump and Putin being supposedly in bed with each other controversy that a lot of people uh, believed in and so forth. But the threat was mainly external. And Homeland, as its title suggests, sort of acts as a kind of a transition or a bridge to, yes, the threat can be external, but we have to protect the homeland. And nowadays, whether it's Donald Trump and the January 6th activities and the uprising and insurrection and so forth, or whether it's people who are saying that white supremacy and social intolerance is the greatest domestic threat, you have the almost inevitable from the beginning, when you think about it, weaponization of the tools that were used to fight the war on terror being used by both extreme left and extreme right to say that an attack, you know, Donald Trump says an attack on me is uh, an attack on the country, it's terror. And the 
illiberal, radical left, the type that thinks freedom of speech is just a code word for racism without consequences and transphobia and so forth, they would say that social intolerance is a terroristic threat and that your words or your silence is violence. And that all is sort of the chickens coming home to roost. And I saw a very good episode of uh, Frontline, the public television documentary series, which was certainly from a liberal point of view, but it showed how the weaponization of the tools that were used to fight the war on terror and the privacy invasions and the warrantless wiretaps and all of this overreach almost inevitably led to the horrific kind of polarized political environment that we have today, where people are actually saying that an attack on my views and on my politics is terrorism. And talk about a sad ending is all I can say. That's a real Debbie Downer, if ever there was one. But it certainly was foreshadowed. One can give 24 and Homeland. I don't know that they ever set out to it. It might have been completely inadvertent, but they did sort of foreshadow where, I won't say where it was going, but at least where it had the potential to go, unfortunately. Yeah, the country is way more divided and way way more hateful than it was. The news these days does sound like some of the hysteria that was typical of 24 and Homeland. And broadly speaking, conspiracy has replaced any other part of opinion in politics. And there's no happy end, just like there's no happy end for the Afghanistan war. And it's not obvious to me that there's much of a happy transformation of Hollywood either. The mood in the country has not gotten better over the last 20 years. Neither Obama nor Trump managed to inspire at least their supporters, at least for a couple of years. The dark stuff has just kept piling on. I suppose we've gotten used to it, and it's perhaps not quite as bad, or at least not as obviously debased as, say, 70s cinema, where there's misery every which way you look. But if I were to compare cinema these days to something, it would be to 70s cinema, minus the remarkable directorial talents and actors of those times. Apparently, you can have this kind of national agony without anything artistic to show for. As our conversation suggests, it all ends with TV, which is remarkably drab stuff. Somehow, the dark passions of the nation can completely bypass artistic talent or vision and issue in these kinds of TV series that not only do not have any important redeeming qualities, but they seem to participate in the growing hysteria, as you suggested. So we don't have a high note to end on. We can only say we will be doing more podcasts on post-9-11 cinema. Of course, there's an entire genre of Iraq and Afghanistan war movies that we haven't touched on since we cannot touch on anything in one conversation. And there is certainly more artistic merit in those war movies than there is in war TV or espionage war TV at any rate. But we must leave it at this for now. Uh, Telly, thank you for joining me. I was pleased to talk with you again. and glad to think through all of the things you proposed, and I'm glad to be able to offer our audience such a well-structured conversation on a topic of, I think, some importance on which we can finally reflect, having gotten some distance from the events. Thanks a lot, and let's do this again sometime soon. 
Oh, it's an, always an honor and a pleasure to do these appearances with you. And it's a great pleasure to be your co-pilot on these marvelous podcasts. And as it were, in my day job at the noted sales agency, Porter Pictures in Beverly Hills, I sort of get a chance to re kind of screen and review so many films as I did in my straight ahead film and TV critics days when I wrote my books, Culture War and, and some books on classic TV and so forth. But to be able to really talk about and deconstruct their uh, meaning is always something I'm up for. And I wish I had the chance to do it more, but it's uh, great to be able to do it with you and, and with your audience as well. Yes, Telly, these are always worthwhile conversation. And for our audience, go online somewhere and find Telly Davidson, Culture War. It will shed light on our conversation now. And I think pretty much all the conversations we have had before we keep turning to the 90s and the turn of the century to see what has happened to us. And I think fruitfully so. All right, Telly, all the best. And to you too. 